Welcome to a brand new series of 20-Minute Topic. I'm Marcus Stead, and joining me in each episode will be veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins as we delve deep into a different subject. This time, we discuss the role of universities in the modern world and how technology is going to transform our working habits in the decades ahead. Greg, I was at school in the 1990s into the early 2000s, and the conventional wisdom at the time was that if you worked hard, passed your GCSEs, passed your A-levels, went to university, you would be guaranteed a decent, well-paid, stable job for life. And I noticed when I started university at 2002 that that relationship was starting to break down already. And when I left university in 2005 um, and went into the workplace, it came as a shock to a lot of people that friends and acquaintances of ours who were good with their hands, plumbers, electricians, even brickies, were in seemingly more stable jobs and better paid jobs than we were. And I think one of the things that kept it at bay for quite a long time was that the new Labour government increased the public sector by one million. Then we had the 2008 recession and so-called austerity kicked in. And I think in the years since, the difference has become more stark. University is no longer a gateway to a guaranteed, well-paid, secure job. I think, um, basically, uh, what you say is 100% true. However, two, one quick point on what you've said. University has been extended and was extended by the Labour government in uh, the 1970s to include polytechnics. That led to a downgrading of universities in many aspects, um, not least of which is the number of people who take degrees in knitting, needlework and major studies, um, subjects which wouldn't have even been considered at university. Uh, back in the second before labor downgraded the the universities as i recall under jack straw's guidance um and with the backing of barbara car castle and such individuals as professor milliband father of the two milliband milliband boys um, are better, better known now hmm. however what i'd like to do is point out that there is nothing unique about what you are saying. The world changes. We live <laughs> in many aspects on a planet that thrives on change. I'm going to go back to what you were saying a minute ago about the expansion of universities uh, in the 1970s. I think there was a more recent development in the John Major era where um, there was a huge expansion then. And then into the early Blair era, we had Blair's famous target of getting 50% of young people into university. Now, I was saying at the time, I was saying this, but even when I was at university, the purpose of that was to make the youth unemployment register look artificially low. There was no great thing about the importance of getting a degree. It was a way of fiddling the youth unemployment figures, as far as I could tell. But there's this sort of contract that people of your generation had with the university system that my generation doesn't have, and those younger than me can frankly forget it, and it's this. If you had graduated from a university, you could reasonably expect in the 1960s to be able to afford a house in a nice area on an affordable mortgage, 
a secure private pension, a reasonable level of job security, to retire perhaps even below the age of 60, as many particularly teachers have done. Um, you could save money and put it in the equivalent in those days of an ISA, probably called a PEP or a TESA in those days, on a reasonable rate of interest. Now, all those assumptions have gone. Even with a degree, you will not necessarily be able to afford a nice house and affordable mortgage, certainly not in London and the South East. Secure private pensions have all but disappeared. Job security, for reasons we're going to go into in a moment, is nothing like at the level it once was. And retirement, my generation, I'm 35, are unlikely to retire before we're 65, or quite likely a good bit older, and those younger than me, older still. That contract of things you could reasonably expect, and I haven't even mentioned student debt, which you've also got to add into the equation, but that contract between the graduate and the jobs market has completely disappeared, I think. I think you can take into consideration another contract. Um, when university was an option uh, to my generation, uh, you had to be able to go to university. Mm. And by which I mean, if you discuss with long-term lecturers at university, they say nowadays the kids who are coming to university have poor communication skills. Many of them have to be taught more complexly to read and write. Mm. They need to be spoon-fed in terms of many areas of life, um, whether that is simple things like um, fundamental uh, feeding habits, how to look after themselves. Um, it's an extension of nursery, not um, <laughs> the beginning of elite learning. Mm. Um, very few uh, people graduating from school to university would appear to have the vaguest clue how to learn. The problem is um, just pouring information at people so that they can pass exams, rehearsing exactly what the questions might be, all they are learning is how to pass exams. They aren't learning their subject in any depth. But that, that suggests, doesn't it, that there's a problem with the secondary school system. And I noticed this. I was at secondary school 1995 to 2000. I was in sixth form college 2000 to 2002. And you, there was this sort of, how can I put this? There was this very regimented way. This is what's likely to come up on the exam paper. This is what's likely to come up. And this is what you need to learn. Now, that even extended to something like English literature, where they were teaching us Shakespeare plays in that context. And what that did is it put me off Shakespeare, and I mean this, for years. I wouldn't go near a Shakespeare play because it wasn't about something to be watched, performed and enjoyed and even read. It was something, this is what's going to come up in the exam, and you need to know this, 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 and this. And then about five years after I left school, it must have been a good five years, I watched a Shakespeare play on, I think it was Sky Arts, and I thought, hang on, this is actually quite good, and I'm enjoying this, because it was being performed to an audience, and it was enjoyed, and there was no pressure at my end. 
and now I will sit through Shakespeare plays and I will read Shakespeare plays. But they can, the way teaching is done in secondary schools with all this exam-focused targeting, and by the way, which is done for the benefit of the teachers and the school rather than the pupil, um, it's not, as you say, it's not learning. It's, it's parrot fashion stuff, isn't it? Um, very much so. Um, but there are two points to make here. Uh, when I was at school, I would define teaching as a profession. Mm. Now... I would define it as a job mm. with heavy political and propaganda overtones, mm. um, firstly. Secondly, is it any wonder that pupils have difficulty functioning in an adult world when they are walking down the street with their clothing totally akimbo, um, whatever school they seem to go to, mm -hmm. uh, bumping into people and things uh, because they're staring at a handheld computer screen. Mm. And is it telling them how to walk? Um, because that's what they're supposed to be doing, walking from A to B. Mm. Um, why are they so obsessed with what people say about them and other people? Um, celebrities or the great cult of slebs what is the point in going to school when the people who are held up as examples to them are semi-literate semi morons who can kick a ball well i think the evidence we see of this is the popularity of television programs like love island and also how so many young people today seem to value their self-worth by how many likes they get on instagram um, this certainly doesn't, whether they go on to university or not, this certainly doesn't bode well for them getting, being suitable people for a workplace. So I'm going to move this discussion on now to the issue of manufacturing. And to take an example, one of the reasons Port Talbot Steelworks has lasted as long as it has is because in the 1980s, they slimmed down quite dramatically, laying off half their workforce, but they made the business... Um, able to compete in the global market. Now, there was a big issue for those, you're old enough to remember this, I'm not, but I'm aware it went on. The 1970s overmanning was a big thing, where there was a reluctance to introduce technology into many workplaces because it would mean people would be laid off. But ultimately, when you're competing in a global market, if you're not using utilising technology in that way, you can guarantee your competitors will be. So that was the example of Port Talbot Steelworks in the 1980s. Lay off half your staff, bringing the machinery necessary. Hey, presto, you've got a competitive business for the decades ahead. Technology is now at a stage, is it not, where there's going to be a slimming down of workforces in a way we have never seen before, which will make the 1970s seem like nothing by comparison. I think um, the Industrial Revolution uh, started this trend. Mm -hmm. There have been periods when there's been relative inactivity in that slimming down. All hands-on jobs were hands-on. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it's a production line, not somebody making um, a complex artifact, but somebody putting in two of the bolts that make a complex artifact. Mm. Um, cars are being produced in many places by or, or should I say many areas of car production by robots. Mm. Um, 
we have less and less and less need of uh, competent individuals. Mm. Uh, we also are now um, facing a wave of technology that few, if any, can even expect to, in their wildest dreams, to understand. Mm. Um, yes, we all talk glibly of 5G, except me, um, uh, because I have a, a broadband connection, which is the very best that BT can produce for me, which is between one and three megabytes per second. Meanwhile, I understand, Marcus, that yours is 62 gigabytes. 50, 58, but there's no point in splitting hairs. When you're on about two or three and I'm on 58, it's not really worth arguing about between 58 and 62, is it? Um, but, but doesn't this bring us on to a wider point? You mentioned 5G and the way that's going to revolutionise workplaces in the years ahead. That's even going to revolutionise the medical sector, isn't it? Um let us take, because medicine pertains to everybody in a way that they can understand, mm, yeah. um, it, rather than taking diff other different sectors that don't affect absolutely everybody. Mm. You will, I'm sure, most of you appreciate that there has already been a dramatic change in medicine in the, um, starting about, 25 years ago with laparoscopic surgery, um, better known to um, the lay uh, speaker on the subject as keyhole surgery. Um, operations where they had to cut the body open, um, and I promise I won't show you the scars, um, where it left you tremendously vulnerable to infection, which um, also left you in hospital for two or three weeks recovering can now be done as overnight surgery with keyhole. Um, in my instance, um, cancer of the kidney, uh, I was literally cut in half on an operating table to remove the kidney. Now it can be done with two small holes and a slightly larger one, about an inch and a half, cut in the abdomen, uh, where instruments are pushed in through um, these two small holes that are uh, fixed at the end of the operation with one stitch in each. Uh, and they can, with those instruments, remove the kidney, put it into a bag system, transport it to uh, the one and a quarter inch hole, uh, cut, should I say, that they've made further down the abdomen, and extract the kidney through that aperture. And you can be out of hospi hospital the following day. Mm. Mm. That's taking one operation. Um, laparoscopic surgery is such that um, some models choose to remove a rib on either side to improve their figure. But they wish to do this without creating visible scars. And la it, laparoscopically, the rib can be moved intravaginally mm. with 
instruments. Mm-hmm. Now, 5G technology comes to play, and these instruments can be operated in real time with 5G technology. This means that um, a technician stroke nurse can lead you into the surgery, lie you on the bed and make sure you're comfortable, an anaesthetist can give administer the appropriate anaesthetic, and a piece of technology, in the case, for instance, of a prostate operation uh, called a da Vinci machine, can be positioned in the correct position, and currently the surgeon sits usually in the same room, um, probably 10 feet away from the patient, and operates through a a VDU screen. However, with 5G technology, uh, with a shortage of surgeons, uh, and paying very high wages for for consultant surgeons in countries like Britain and France, Germany and America, Uh, the operation can be conducted by a surgeon located in Buenos Aires, Istanbul or um, Mumbai without them ever meeting, ever speaking to or ever touching the patient. So this is going to revolutionise healthcare and the need for specialists in all disciplines then? It's going to revolutionise it in the need for any specialists if they expect to be paid an exorbitant wage because there'll always be somebody who can do it cheaper. Ah, A classic classic example, Hmm. a friend of an associate of mine, she had had problems um, as a teenager uh, that led to her having blackened teeth. I haven't asked why. Um, which had been treated by the NHS and reduced to being sort of grey and pretty unsightly. Hmm. Um, To have crowns done on all of them was going to cost her somewhere between nine and twelve hundred pounds per tooth. Yeah. If you need implants, that was going to cost between 1500 and 2000 per tooth. She recently went to Turkey for five days and came back with 32 crowns at a total cost of £2,000. So therefore, okay, that's a good story from her point of view, but I can see this causing big problems in other areas, in, in fact, across manufacturing, across medicine, even across the service-based economy, because the global nature of work as this technology kicks in in the next five to ten years, it will probably render the minimum wage and the living wage meaningless, won't it? Because we will be competing with not just Eastern Europe, but also India and China in all sectors, not not just in terms of cheap clothing and cheap electronics, in all sectors, including skilled work, and that will drive down wages. Plenty to think about. 
My thanks to Greg. Join us next week where we're going to be broadening the discussion to look into how to best build a career in an ever-changing world. Thanks for your company. See you next week. <laughs>